Welcome to the last Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast of 2022. This is Friday, December 30th. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, and with me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An Associate Editor and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we've talked to you about the movies we liked. We've talked to you about the streaming TV we liked. We've talked to you about books we liked. We've talked to you. I don't. What did we talk about yesterday? I can't even remember. Silver now. linings. Silver linings. Crushingly morose silver linings. Right. So something. today we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to uh, plagiarize from uh, the Pew Research Center, which issued strike, which issues its annual report on striking findings from 2022 public opinion around some of the biggest news events and uh, what they call their 15 most striking research findings, though they're not that striking. Okay, but we have to give a shout out to our friends at Pew because I, I was saying to you guys earlier, it's one of the few research institutions that strives to be and actually is able to be neutral and present a lot of good data. They they it's a it, they do great work. I rely a lot on their Internet and American Life Project. So I, I just want to give a big shout out. We, okay. You know, they had so, to they had to advertise it as striking. Not all are striking, but okay. They do great work. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. And and given the fact that we 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 uh we had a, a tussle a bit with uh, Pew on on its uh report on American Jewish life uh, earlier uh this year, uh yes. article that we did on on uh Haredim and education. Um they uh, uh but uh, they're 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 good guys and they're good people and they try hard and and uh, and you know it's not not you can't say so much of that about a lot of social scientists. So so okay, first striking finding: roughly four in ten Americans say none of their purchases in a typical week is paid for using cash. This is up from twenty nine percent in twenty eighteen, twenty four percent in twenty fifteen. The portion of Americans who say that all or almost all of their purchases are paid for with cash in a typical week has declined from 24% in 2015 to 14% today. So uh, let's take, so how how much cash do you guys use in a given week? Almost none. I never have cash on me. It's actually quite frustrating because you occasionally need it. And then mm -hmm. where is it? Well, you could always get it. And then put it in your wallet and not use it. Yeah, you could. <laughs> but the debit card's right there. Right. Well, um, I've I've noticed an uptick here in DC in places that no longer accept cash. So you have to have some sort of electronic payment. Um I I I actually tend to carry more cash around because I send my children out to run errands and they don't have credit cards. So <laughs> and I do trust them occasionally with my own credit card, but they uh so I have some cash on hand. But it's it's true that it's not as common and some places actually won't even accept it as I am persuaded that cashless business or yeah, cashless business is a is a civil rights issue. The argument around it has become pretty uh, enough is it, substantial enough that I'm I'm persuaded by it, not persuaded enough to make the post office into a bank, for example, because that's part of that argument. But nevertheless, um, it is a it's a valid perspective that this is a, a class based discriminatory uh, effort to shield you know retailers don't like it because they got to pay fees to run but, these cards but i understand I but still no but i don't understand it myself because i believe 
that uh, there is the, the legal issue around it is literally based on the word legal tender. Like you, we have legal tender in the United States. You want to buy something. Uh, the fact that people can tell you, no, 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 I won't take cash. You have to use a credit card. Cash is a legal tender. Like you, you, you I'm not sure that 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 should be a voluntary decision made on the part of business owners. You're saying that they they don't like it because of fees. They do seem to like it because then they don't have to have any cash on hand, thus, of course, mitigating the possibility of burglary and also making it easier for the uh, barista to be even worse at what the barista does than the barista is already. Well, and not having to have a relationship with a bank that involves a, an employee going to the bank with a big bag right. of cash, right? Like that's yeah. the, yeah. Right. Abe, what about you? I never, ever <clears throat> have cash on me. And then once in a blue moon, you need it and you're humiliated and you feel like a child um, because you don't, you don't have, you know, yeah. a few dollars you have to, to buddy, give, can give you the spare a dime? person or something. Yeah. <laughs> but well. the, the, the upside of this is that uh, when you live in New York and uh, you're accosted on the street for money, you could say, you I don't, don't have, have any. anything and you know that mean yeah. it and you're not yeah. lying. Okay, yeah. so here in DC, we have a couple like total professional panhandlers in certain neighborhoods that have Venmo. They'll be like, "Well, I got a Venmo. Here's my. You can Venmo me my money." <laughs> yeah, that but is a lot the of... greatest. The it's... greatest development in the cashless society is if you're in the summer and you're in a park and your kid wants ice cream or you're thirsty and you want a drink and you one of these like stands that sells them and now they all have Venmo. And so tip, you can literally stand there with your you. phone and yeah. pay them. And and that's the hardest thing is when you are low on cash and, you know, you need something from something that really is a cash only business. And obviously this is now uh, something valuable to them. And and that that that's that's sort of like a hilarious thing. You know, you have some like you think about those carts and things of what a schleppy, horrible job it is. They have to roll them in. You know, like uh, Riverside Park near where I live is very hilly. It's a long, you know, descend down into parkland and then down by the river and stuff like that. And these guys are like working their tails off. It's physically very demanding and they look like classic immigrant working class, like just, you know physically spent from their work and that but they are technologically competent like they realize that they can collect twice the money that they could have collected when but, they were cash but also them. what we should say to the to to put my tinfoil hat on for a moment it's not just that this could exclude people who who do most of their work or business in cash because they either have terrible credit or they can't afford a smartphone that has these apps on it uh everything can be tracked when it's electronic. So this actually suits, I mean, it's it's a boon for, you know, any auditor at the IRS who wants to make sure that the tips you're earning, because now a lot of tipped workers will also yeah. ask for their tips in Venmo. You can track everything. Everything's trackable. Fair enough. Okay. Can I just say um, I have one psychological point about uh, yeah. cash here? I do notice that when I have it, which is only like the result of my having made some mistake and you know, I needed to pay for something, and then it, it couldn't get it. I, I I I withdrew too much money for it, so now I'm left with cash. Um, there is a sort of frenzy spe of spending with it. It's 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 too exciting to actually be able to hand it's someone like monopoly bills. money. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. It's already out of your account, right? Gone. So it's like the right. money's the money's spent by being in your wallet. It's already gone. That that is hilarious. Okay, let's uh, let's take a break and hear from our friends at Fire for the last time this year. 
Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights, Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Okay, uh, so here's something that is uh, their striking finding, which is probably known to people who listen to this podcast if you are, if you follow sort of um, social science demographic and uh, behavioral trends. Um, uh, if recent trends continue, Pew reports, Christians could make up a minority of Americans by 2070. Uh, it's according to a September report that models several hypothetical scenarios of how the U.S. religious landscape might change over the next 50 years based on religious switching patterns. And the switch, of course, here is not from Christianity to another religion, but from Christianity to nuns, to people who have no religion. And um, uh, that's the main uh, that that seems to be the main uh, threat. I I. Uh, I think that of all the striking findings, this is on on the one hand the richest and the most culturally important, and also the one that is least uh, that that f- will follow a least believable trajectory. Even though, as we sit here, you can't imagine that the trend will be reversed. Uh, the only way I can explain that is to say, I'm going to use an example from the Jewish community. There's been a lot of out-migration of Jews uh, over the last 70 years um, because of the ability to assimilate, the ability to marry out, and not to believe things. But part of the but the, the interesting wrinkle is that uh, orthodoxy, or the most committed form of Judaism, um, is has uh, risen staggeringly um, and is demographically likely to overtake. Uh, all the other branches, uh, reform and reform and conservative, in the next twenty years. So you actually have a a, a rededication or uh, to religion uh, as a result of modern life um, that might be happening at the same time as people fall away, and therefore the intensity of religious faith uh, will 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 deepen among the religious while others have this attenuated connection to all of the things that religion provides. And I think that gives the religious a leg up, frankly. I mean, I don't know how else to put it because, you know, religious people have a different view of the future. They have a different view of the family. They have a different view of the purpose of work. They have a different view of their role in the community and communitarian concerns and, um, and, uh, and therefore, I, I just you know, so that's 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 where I am, uh, Christine. I know this is an interest of yours as well. Well, I I was I was curious to learn more about um, how self identification changes. So when I was a kid, you would call yourself a Christian if you were baptized in a faith in a faith tradition, right? You actually had to belong to a church and be a, a baptized person of faith. But that even then in the seventies was not the average standard. There were a lot of people who I think consider themselves nominally 
Christian, like they go to maybe they go to a Christmas mass or they go to a uh, in the Easter service. Uh, there are CNE Christians. We used to call them Christmas and Easter Christians. Um, they would probably respond to survey data uh, then as saying I'm Christian, but I'm I'm. I find it interesting how many more adults who are raised in a secular household. So maybe the parents were raised with a bit of nominal faith. Maybe they were nominally Catholic or nominally Protestant or their parents were a mixed religious marriage. And so they didn't really get anything. Um, as adults, they often then seek out faith, right? Not even uh, orthodoxy necessarily, but just some sort of faith tradition. So I wonder about uh, Gen Z. This is my kids' generation. I know a lot of the, uh, there are a lot of mixed faith families among my kids' friends, I've noticed. But the kids themselves, when they start to have kids, that's when religion often comes into the mix. Um, young parents try to decide, are we going to raise our kids this way or that way? Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this trend slows as people seek out a kind of cafeteria cafeteria approach to faith where they choose the the faith tradition that most suits their sensibility. And I know there's if you're Orthodox, this is kind of offensive to say, like, you don't get to pick and choose. You're, you're part of a tradition. There are responsibilities and whatnot. But it's a very American approach to faith. Um, and I think uh, setting aside Protestant Catholic Jews, we should look uh, Mormon traditions, for example. I mean, they tend to have a high success rate with generate younger generations continuing on in the faith. So it's fascinating to me. Um, I'd be curious to know if people uh, who used to identify themselves as Christian, even though they didn't attend services regularly, would now be the people who are like, eh, not really anything. It's a very... It's it's it, it is as I say. Uh, Briefly, my my two books are on the sort of re remoralization of society right. by the left, by the semi secular left, which has adopted both the the social traditions of the Catholic Church with the ethic and of the of Protestantism, and applying the Protestant um, moral traditions and ways of life uh, to uh, a, a social doctrine that owes its origins to rerum novarum, its social justice. Uh, and they're secular. They have no church. They are unchurched and will remain unchurched. But they're desperate for some sort of religious orthodoxy. They don't recognize that as religious orthodoxy, but that's what it is. It is a moral code. Um, and we're really overdue for a great awakening in this country. Yeah. I the mean, makings there of been, it are there. There have been three, and the great awakenings are in response to uh, secularization is not the right term for what was going on in the 19th century because there was corruption. no secularism what corruption well and massive social yeah. change at a scale that is right. difficult to yeah. process at the individual and family unit level yes right um also yeah i mean it was nietzsche right who said if you don't believe in anything you can believe if you don't believe in anything you can come to believe in everything like that is and that's where we have these quasi-religious uh uh convictions about you know climate change or about the environment the kind of um almost pagan thinking about nature as a as an independent entity that that we have declared war on uh that kind of thing and i would even say that a lot of the uh, the trans nine bonnet all, all of that stuff is this um radical re rethinking uh without people having any idea of cartesianism like it is it is what what you are, how you you know what you you are, what you think you are. Your thought defines you, as opposed to anything else. And uh, that is mind body dualism. Mind body dualism is the centerpiece of Christian faith, ultimately. And uh, and so this is some form of you know like uh, 
uh, things come back that look like they're new, but they're not new. And you can see what's attractive about them. Um, and when you, when you have things like mind body dualism with absolutely no rules, that's when you get, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I only have a gender assigned at birth as opposed to the idea that who assigned you that gender, you know, if you, if you have this pagan feeling about nature, you should sort of not so quickly say that nature assigned you, whether you were male or female, by having sex organs of that sort, and therefore you don't get to rewrite nature so easily. But, but um, yeah, religion just pops out. Everything is religion, it just even if they don't call it religion. Well, um, I mean, the, 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 the word, I mean, it's sort of this is everything that you're talking about here, but um, the direct, there's a direct inverse relationship between religion and politics here. I mean, as as faith declines, politicization sort of increases in terms of identity and uh, and, and you know, in terms of your investment in your your religious like investment in something. Um I would be happy if if we filled the gap with other I mean, I think I think religion is the best uh receptacle for religious feeling, but um I think politics is the worst. And it, it it is the one that we seem to have latched onto, um, and so you know the, the the frightening thing to me about the finding is that it's it's also another way of saying there's going to be if you can imagine it increased political investment and politicization of 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 the of the population. Yeah, and the idol worship. So you right. know everyone's talked about how Trump's people are idol worship. You know, basically have taken on a form of you know they they view him with a form of idolatry. They sing songs to him. They you know the 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 girls who sang that song deal with strength and win every time at his the cheesy portraits, and stuff like that. Yeah. all of that. But of course you also had like Ruth Bader Ginsburg before her death. Like there was a kind of bizarre idolatry. I'm going to do her workout. You know, here's a, I'm, I have a picture of her on my wall. Like obviously not precisely a, a political figure, but this hunger, hunger for uh, religious symbolism in people's lives will not be stayed and so you get fandom you get political fandom you get all of that and like you know and you just, get this you know this effort to find a moral code in a political platform right um, which is the worst yeah um okay now let me uh let me for the last time this year talk to you about bowl and branch sheets because after long days of decorating hosting and celebrating nothing feels better than a good night's sleep and buttery soft sheets and the signature hem sheet from bowl and branch sheet set from bowl and branch is made from the finest 100 organic cotton you'll ever feel for a luxurious experience you'll enjoy for years to come these products are made different so you can sleep better at night free from toxins pesticides and harsh chemicals at every step of its making made by artisans who earn the pay and respect they deserve these signature hem sheet sets, they have designs and colors for every bedroom and mattress size. They have an unmatched softness to start. They get softer with every single wash. And best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all orders. Bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with Bowl and Branch bedding for a limited time. Get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary okay most americans say journalists should always strive to give every side equal coverage but journalists themselves are more likely to say every side does not always deserve equal coverage according to two separate surveys conducted in late winter amid debate over both sides in the media 
U.S. journalists, every side does not always deserve equal coverage, 55%. Journalists should always strive to give every side equal coverage, 44%. U.S. adults, 76% say journalists should always strive to give every side equal coverage, and only 22% say every side does not always deserve equal coverage. Welcome to the reason that everybody hates the media. <laughs> There's your trust gap, ladies and gentlemen. If they would, if the media would only look at that honestly and understand that, that's why people don't trust them. And this, this, the the moral narrative approach to journalism that's sort of overtaken the the uh, mainstream media, particularly post George Floyd, I would say, about race, about politics during the Donald Trump years, obviously. Um, that has they are unshaken in the belief that they are on the side of right. Um, it's, it's shocking the degree to which they feel no shame in even telling this to pollsters. You should, yeah, be you know, that number is actually higher. <laughs> even if you actually believe this, you should be ashamed. It's it's an it's a, just an abandonment of the central, the prime directive, your chief ethic in your job. I, I can't imagine an alternative. It'd be like money managers convincing themselves that well, we should embezzle a little. Like, I don't I don't understand how you work yourself up into this. They're better than us, Noah. They know better than us. They are they are here to help us understand the moral universe in the way that they do. I think that's the attitude. So. Right. So the ethic of the ethic of journalism, though, was always betrayed, was our purpose is to collect facts and lay them out. So that can be a crime. That can be what's in a bill. That can be a political argument between two parties. You lay out the facts. You can create a narrative to do it. You can do it in classic AP boring, you know, uh, reverse pyramid style. You can do all kinds of things. Um, But that that was sort of all things being equal. That was the ethic of when I, you know, when I came up is we're, we're collectors and disseminators of fact. And with the rise of all sorts of things and the way the Internet culture has worked, um, the word explainer enters the vocabulary and suddenly and that that is that is the moment at which the rubicon was crossed because the purpose of workaday journalism is not to explain it, it the the classic purpose is to present fact uh to people not to explain facts to people or explain where things are there is a place for that it's like what we do We try to explain how things work and why they happen, and we do have an ideological tinge to what we do, and that is part and parcel of our honesty about what we do. And contemporary repertorial journalism covers itself in the sheen sheen of fact, while in fact being driven by the idea that it is their job to explain. And this is part of the way, as Ring Lardner would say, you explain, shut up, he explained. But it's it's not just explaining. I mean, what what the question gets to really is um, not covering, um, not giving voice to. And this is a this has to do with the conflation of speech and violence, really, right? Because uh, if if certain views and certain statements, certain certain sentences are are the equivalent of violence, then you you, you cannot publish them and therefore perpetrate violence uh, well, and, on the reader. And when you have a platform. And to cover people accurately who don't deserve coverage is to platform them and you're therefore complicit in whatever happens as a result. Well, and the journalists themselves, as we remember from Senator Tom Cotton's perfectly reasonable op-ed in The New York Times, feel themselves to be violently threatened by words 
from people with whom they disagree. And that's that to me is a real hallmark sign that you're in the wrong profession. Like just if words think- scare you, don't work with words. Go find right. something, work with kittens, like find something else <laughs> that's better suited to your extremely vulnerable nature. I mean, just even thinking about the sentence that just came out of my mouth makes no sense. Um, you, you don't have a platform. It's not a platform. To even call it a platform totally misrepresents what journalism is. It's not a platform. It's not a platform for you. It's certainly not a platform for anybody you cover. It's a sheet. It no, should be journalism, as such. journalism is supposed to be reporting on what people who are on the platform say. People who are standing at the dais on the platform tell us what they're saying. Right. And you don't control that. And you can then give and then you You're can also give it, it context. You can say, you know, President Biden said this today and that this relates to X, Y, and Z that happened. But yeah, you don't have a platform. But there's we have a platform. But there's a there's a way in which they want to, you know, they actually embrace a model of, you know, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, which isn't journalism. That's something else, right? That's a that's a form of uh, activism or advocacy or therapy. But they have embraced that. So what that means is that anyone who they see uh, and the irony here being, of course, that most of the people at the elite institutions in in mainstream media are themselves highly comfortable compared to a lot of the Americans they cover. But they would not see themselves as that way. So there's a there's a there's a weird sort of paternalistic sense of, you know, we know better. We're going to help these these poor downtrodden people who don't understand how terrible Trump is or who've been you know misled. And and that condescension is evident to every single person who is at the receiving end of it you know it's interesting you mentioned that thing about afflicting the comfortable and you know comfort comforting the afflicted that phrase comes from a a turn of the century parody of self-involved journalism that that is uh, finley peter dunn's mr dooley uh, who was a sort of character he was like a a straight talking character uh in in a in a in a Chicago newspaper column of great uh renown. Uh and I think at the turn of the century he wrote this column, Mr. Dooley on newspaper publicity. I just looked it up, and he said the newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the militia, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead. And roasts them afterwards. The whole point being, everybody in newspapering is way too big for their britches, thinks they're more important than they are, and and should you know and should be slapped upside the head with a wet fish. And that phrase then became a sort of noble calling, a badge of honor, right? Right. It, right. it started as a parody of an attitude, and has now become the descriptor. Uh, of the attitude, which is, uh, I think, pretty pretty striking. Okay, look, uh, this has been a momentous year. A lot of amazing things, and a lot of terrible things, and a lot of important things, and a lot of foolish things have happened. Thank, thank you for listening uh, all year. Thank you for uh, g- giving us your ear uh, while we uh, while we sort of ventilate on our own views and try to clarify our own thinking. Um, it's a great honor for us uh, that you uh, that you spend so much time with us uh, as we do that um, uh, with every good wish for a wonderful, despite my complaints about New Year's, uh, uh, every good wish uh, for a wonderful uh, New Year's and we will see you 
back again in 2023. So for Abe Greenwald, Christine Rosen, and Noah Rothman, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.